this series in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, tracking our way through, and we're into chapter 7 today. Uh, Daniel, I like to call future hope that's found in the past. I find that uh, we don't learn from history very well, and with Daniel, when you understand the, the message of this book, uh, really about the, the sovereign power of God and his authority and the scope of which he rules all things, it really can impact your life. And there's things in there that are so relevant, they just jump off the page, even into our own personal lives. You can see we don't learn a lot from, from history when we read the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to be looking at uh, a dream uh, and it's a dream that Jesus remembered. And most people don't think of this this way, uh, but I want to present it to you this way. We've gone through the first six chapters of Daniel, which are fairly easy because they're, they're a narrative. So it's telling a story. You know, you've got chapter one, and you're introduced to the, the exiles who are brought by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem which he destroys and destroys the temple. He takes these exiles into Babylon hundreds of miles away. And you're introduced to four of them. There's Daniel. Uh, tell me their Hebrew names if you remember. Meshach is Babylonian, but I'll take it. Shadrach, that's Babylonian, but I'll take it. Azariah, good, that's Hebrew, yeah. Omar, no, no, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Yeah, what is it? So Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. Yeah, so you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You speak Babylonian more than Hebrew. Most Christians know more Babylonian than Hebrew. And uh, that's a joke also. And uh, Daniel, they called him Belteshazzar, right? And so these guys were young, probably in their teens, something like that. Maybe young adults, but quite young. And they were the cream of the crop, as you remember, and they're deported, exiled into Babylon. And we see how they comport themselves. And you move into chapter 2, and you've got Nebuchadnezzar with this weird dream, which we will talk about a bit today. And he, he remember, he says, well, I want to know what this dream means, but I want people to tell me what the dream is and then tell me what the dream means, which is impossible and you see Daniel rises to the challenge and is able by the power of the Spirit to not only know the dream, but interpret the dream. And you, you watch how these people comport themselves. In Babylon, you see the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they refuse to worship this 90-foot statue that Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, puts up. And, you know, he says, you play the, when I play the music, everybody bows down to the statue and worships the statue. And these three, these three young men say, no, we will not do that. And they are thrown into a fiery furnace as a result of that. And we see there's this figure in the fiery furnace, this fourth man in the fiery furnace who rescues them supernaturally from harm. And you, you keep watching, and you, you observe these, these uh, it's a narrative, so it's easy. You see Nebuchadnezzar, 
He, he, God will humble this man. He will humiliate this man because of his pride. You see the transfer of power when the Medo-Persians come in and take out the Babylonians with the handwriting on the wall, if you remember. So it's, it's narrative. It's pretty easy to understand. Although the author will jump from time to time, he will jump from, from uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the last thing we see of him is how he's humbled, humiliated by God, and so God will, after seven years of him being uh, running around like an animal in the, in the jungle, essentially, God will restore him after he uh, is humiliated, and he just jumps off the page after that. He's, he's gone. He, he, he kind of exalts God in his own way, never really comes to a place of repentance, but then he's gone. And then, boom, you, you jump to Belshazzar. Well, who's Belshazzar? This is jumping way into the future toward the end of the exile. And so you have to be careful with that. But it's narrative. It's pretty easy. When you move into chapter 7, which is what we're doing today, and 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, now you're into the crazy stuff. Now you're into, this is the language of apocalypse. And apocalypse is not the end of the world. That's not what the word means. It means you pull back the curtain. Something is being blocked, you remove, you apocalypse, so you can see what's behind, reveals what's behind. We get the word revelation from this, uh, the book of Revelation, it's an apocalypse. You see what's behind. God reveals, shows people what's behind in this sort of cosmic battle between good and evil. That's, you see this in the book of Revelation. You will see this in the back end of Daniel, and we start with this dream and it is, in my view, the most important dream in the entire Bible. It's the dream, I think the only dream that Jesus recalled and quoted from. And it was him doing that at his trial before the Sanhedrin that got him executed. This dream is, is wide in scope. It is very uh, disturbing, you will see, to Daniel, and it has application even for us, even today, this dream. But it is, you've got to sort of fasten your seatbelts because you're going to see things in this dream, and you're going to be like, is this guy on some kind of weird hallucinogenic drug? No, this is how people wrote Apocalypse. You're going to see all kinds of fantasy things in there, beasts with multiple heads and all this kind of thing. This is the language of apocalypse. And you see this in the book of Revelation as well. You know, 500, 600 years after Daniel experiences this, you see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Revelation will even quote uh, heavily from the book of Daniel. And Revelation is a great clue to interpret some things in Daniel. When Jesus was on trial, uh, Good Friday or the Thursday before what we think of it as Good Friday. He's standing in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and the high priest finally puts him under oath, interrogates him, and says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Point blank, he asks him this question, and Jesus replies, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
the high priest is irate when he hears this language. He tears his robe. He says, have we've heard enough? This is blasphemy. And they push and do everything that they can to get rid of him, ultimately trying to pressure Pontius Pilate, the procurator, who's stuck between a rock and a hard place and for political reasons gives in and has Jesus crucified. What was it that he said here that made the high priest so angry? Folks, it's extremely hot and controversial what Jesus is saying there in that time. Even the question that the high priest asks is very hot for that time because there's great debate that even this idea that the Messiah would be the Son of God, this was, a, this was a very controversial idea. It's not to us today as Christians. We say it over and over and over again, and it's like nothing to us. But back in that time, this was very controversial. They believed in the Messiah, yes. But to call the Messiah the Son of God, which means to deify the Messiah, to say that he's of the same stuff as God, the same essence of God, which is what Jesus did all the time. When he called himself the Son of God, that's what he's doing. He's trying to say that he's equal to God in essence, in, 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 uh, in his nature. He is equal. He is deity. This was very controversial. The high priest puts the question out there, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Because this is what we hear on the street this is what we hear you said or people say that you say. So we want to hear it from your own mouth now. If you are, as you say, the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And Jesus does not resist this one. He does not keep silent on this one. He makes it extremely clear. And he say, uses this term, son of man, which he loves to use in the Gospels because he's pulling from a dream that Daniel had. And this image of coming on the clouds of heaven, but sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, he, what he's doing there is he's saying, I'm equal in authority to God, and I am the son of man who is coming on the clouds of heaven. He's pulling from a dream, a dream that everybody in the room knew. It's the dream of Daniel from Daniel chapter 7, and he's making the claim very clear that he is deity and he is the Messiah, and he is the one whom Daniel was talking about in the chapter that we're going to look at here, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, you see that Daniel uh, zaps to the first year of Belshazzar. In the previous chapter, uh, or two chapters before, it's the last year of Belshazzar. The last year of Belshazzar is when the handwriting on the wall came and the Medo-Persians come and they take him out at the end of the night. He's having this, this, uh, this drunken debauchery party with a thousand people and he takes the, the, the gold and the goblets and the things from the, the temple in Jerusalem that, that was looted by his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and he takes those things and he uses them for this kind of this kind of debauchery thing, and the hand comes on the wall. Remember, they bring in Daniel to interpret this thing. Well, this is at the end of Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar is the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. 
He's a co-regent with a king, his father named Nabonidus, who married into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's family through a daughter. Complicated, but here we're looking at the first year of Belshazzar, not the last. So you jump in time here, and this is probably, if it's the first year of Belshazzar, we know Nabonidus uh, reigned from 556 to 539, but that he... Uh, probably made Belshazzar like his co-regent in around 550. So probably 550 BC. This is like, um, it's like 11 years before the, the, the Medo-Persians would come in and the handwriting on the wall incident. So it's pre-handwriting on the wall by like 10, 11 years. Daniel has a dream and visions pass through his mind while he's lying in bed. And so he, we're told he writes it down. And this is what he, what he says, and I'm going to try to put some pictures on the screen so that you can visualize this. It's neat today with the technology. People can create these images, and it really brings it to life. And so he looks, and he sees the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and he sees four different beasts. Again, the language of fantasy in Apocalypse each of these beasts are different from the others, and they come out of the sea one by one. The first one is like a lion, we're told, and it has the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. It's pretty obvious, if you're reading Daniel from the beginning, that this thing, this image, correlates to the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. The one that he said, I want someone to tell me the dream and then interpret the dream. And he had a dream, uh, I'll zap to it, of this statue, if you remember, in Daniel 2. And the statue has different elements that it's built of. You've got a head of gold. You've got a chest and arms of silver. You've got the trunk there in uh, uh, bronze. You've got the legs of iron. And you've got the feet of clay and iron. And Daniel interprets this dream. And then you have a rock that comes out of nowhere that's cut out of uh, not by human hands. And it smashes the statue to pieces, to smithereens, and it takes over the whole scene. And Daniel interprets this passage starting with the head of gold, and he says, you are that head of gold, and you are going to be succeeded by several different kingdoms. One is going to go up, one's going to go down, one after the other after the other, until finally the kingdom of the Messiah will come and take over everything, and everything will submit to him. If you read that dream and then you zap back to what Daniel sees, it's the same message, but a diff different imagery that's being used. So the Babylonians, you even see this in some of the archaeology and the Ishtar gates. You see the very same creature. You see a lion frequently there and other creatures as well. But it's an image that's probably speaking of Babylon here. Interesting the way that it's described. Its wings are torn off. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated and God uh, it took away his mind in a sense, uh, made the man uh, temporarily lose his mind. 
and walk around like an, like an animal in a sense. And he humiliated this man for seven years. This could be the wings torn off. And then the, this animal is lifted from the ground so that it stands up on two feet like a human being. This could be when his, his sanity is restored to him at the end. A mind of a human was given to it. So this is most probably the same thing, same as the statue, but instead of a head of gold, you've got this lion with these wings. You with me so far? It's a bit, a bit kooky, right? So I'm making it really, really, really simple for you because this is like you can read it and just you don't understand what they're talking about. This is what's being talked about, okay? And then the next uh, beast that he sees in verse 5, you've got a second beast that looks like a bear. And it was raised up upon one of its sides and it has three ribs in his mouth. You say, that's so weird. It is. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. You say, whoa, this is something else. This, this bear, again, if you go by that, that statue and what Nebuchadnezzar saw, this is most likely the Medo-Persian Empire, the same thing, this chest and arms of silver from the statue. We know that with the Medo-Persians, not only did they conquer Babylon, but they conquered uh, Lydia and uh, Egypt, and that could be the three ribs in the mouth of this creature. And we know that the Persians dominated eventually the Medo-Persian Empire. This could be why the bear is leaning up on one side. But again, most likely the thing correlates to the same imagery that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Then you see the next uh, uh, beast that comes out, and this one is like a leopard. And on its back, there's four wings like those of a bird. Crazy. And the beast has four heads, right? It's a four-headed leopard with wings. And it was given authority to rule. This is probably referring to the Greeks, and Alexander the Great uh, would have a reputation of being lightning fast in his conquests. This is probably why you have this creature, which is very fast. And we know that when he died, his, his kingdom was divided amongst four generals. And you will see this again in the book of Daniel in the, in the following chapters with great detail and great accuracy, even naming Greece. And this is why I say it to you again, Daniel is savagely criticized by modern scholarship and they say it's impossible. There's no way that this guy could have written this, this book when it's said to be written in the 5th, 6th century BC, it's impossible because he's referring exactly, exactly, exactly to Alexander the Great and the, the, the four generals and the dynasties that would come out of those generals. There's no way it must be about 165 BC because it's impossible. No one can predict the future. Well, God can. And he does through Daniel and even through this vision. And then Daniel sees, and this is really like, you know, it's really scary stuff. After that, he sees another creature. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. 
and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, you remember, you have the iron uh, uh, legs in the statue, and then you have the feet, feet have the two feet, ten toes. Here you've got ten horns, and the feet are made with an iron and clay mix, right, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream. And here you have something, the numbers are the same, but it's really, really frightening, even to Daniel, terrifying and frightening, and it has these ten horns. And while he was thinking about the horns, and uh, I'll back up one, this, this, uh, this beast here, at least until you get to an analysis of what these horns are, this is probably Rome. And so the succession is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. This is probably the four elements in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the four beasts here. It's the same thing. These are the kingdoms that will rise and fall. But there's something additional here, and uh, it really is frightening to Daniel. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and get this, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And the horn had the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. I don't know if you can see that up on your screen. Yeah, you probably can. You see, it's really strange, right? Looks like some kind of fantasy movie or whatever, but this is the imagery that he's using there. And this is most likely, uh, and you'll see this in a couple of minutes, is most likely the uh, this antichrist that's referred to in the book of Revelation. I'll put this back on the screen, okay? A real key to interpret this is uh, the book of Revelation, especially chapters 13 and 14, because you see the same thing. You see the same imagery that is used here, and this so-called little horn uh, we can see in the book of Revelation as well. I'll read the passages in a couple of minutes. So this is, this is what he sees, these, these four crazy crazy beasts, right? And then he looks and he sees something uh, different. He says, um, uh, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and his hair was like white wool, and his throne was flaming with, with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and there was fire flowing from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Quite a sight. The court was seated, and books were opened. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, very similar language being used there. Then I continued to watch because of the, the boastful words that the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live at least for a period of time. 
And then at night I looked, and there before me, this is where Jesus quoted from, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus, remember, he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He even goes further than what this vision says. He is sitting right next to the Ancient of Days in Jesus' reckoning and understanding of this passage. And here it says in verse 14, every language, nation, people will worship him. Now, this is very hotly attacked today. Uh, the Jewish people especially will say, no, you Christians are wrong. This, this figure is not being worshipped here. This section of Daniel is in Aramaic. It means serve. There's no way that the Messiah is going to be worshipped. And they try and skirt around it. But it says authority, glory, and sovereign power. Everyone is going to worship him. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is everlasting. And he is going to rule over this entire world. Amazing. Oh, I heard a radio. Is that pizza? Oh, no. It's, okay. It's, it's, every once in a while, the manager rings the radio here. David, if you could come and turn that radio off here. It sounds like I'm possessed or something. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, just on, turn it off. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, okay, wonderful. So uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, the, and so here you have this, this Messiah here who is worshipped as God. And this is the same thing. Remember the, the, the rock that's cut out not by human hands that comes and smashes the statue and takes over everything. This is the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, watch Daniel's reaction before we get to what this means to us today. He says he was troubled in spirit. Verse 15, it bothers him. He's not at peace because of this dream that he has. It's bothersome, it's disturbing to him, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there and asked them, what, do, what does this mean? This is probably some angelic being or something we don't know. And so this being or whatever says, okay, here I'm going to interpret this for you. Verse 17, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, same as Daniel chapter 2. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And then Daniel, seemingly satisfied with this explanation, he wants to know about this fourth beast, the one that you saw and went, ugh, what is that? You know, he wants to know about this and he's bothered by this, the one that was different from all the others and the most terrifying with the iron teeth and the bronze claws and the beast crushes and devours its victims and so on. 
It's very like um, some sort of fantasy movie. I also wanted to know about the ten horns. And I wanted to know about the three horns that fell. And the horn that looked more imposing. And that spoke boastfully. This is very disturbing to Daniel. He wants to know about this. And he's watching and he, he says, I saw the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And here's the explanation of this. He says, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. That will appear on the earth. It's going to be different. It's going to devour the whole earth. It's going to crush it and so on. And the ten horns, these are ten kings that are going to come from this kingdom. And another king is going to arise, different. And he will subdue three kings. And he will speak against the Most High. And he will oppress his holy people. And he will try to change the set times and the laws, probably something to do with the Jewish religious law. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Or a year, two years and half a year in some reckonings or three and a half years. But the court will sit and his power will be taken and completely destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty and the power and the greatness of all the kingdoms of heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship, there it is again, and obey him. What's clearly being said is that this Messiah who is going to come is going to conquer every kingdom that's ever come and gone, including the worst kingdom of all, the kingdom of this antichrist figure that we meet in the book of Revelation ultimately. And Daniel says to close the chapter, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. He is not at peace by this dream, and his face changes color. He says, my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself, and the chapter ends. It is fascinating to, to look at his reaction to this, this, this dream and to try and contemplate what he saw, why he saw it, why he was disturbed, and, you know, folks, I hear so much ranting and raving these days uh, about uh, the way this is presented in the book of Revelation. And people seems to be these days more than ever. Their favorite passage out of the book of Revelation is from Revelation 13, which talks about the same stuff as this. And people love to airlift this passage, I mean, just over and over and over and over again with this mark that's put on people's hands and foreheads and they can't buy or sell. Folks, the amount of people that I have had who have come to me and said, Pastor, look at this video. Look at this technology. I mean, it's right out of the book of Revelation. This is crazy. That It's like undeniable. Look, you've got a tech thing. You can't buy or sell without it. It's in the head. It's a, how do you explain this, Pastor? And I'm going to tell you what I always say to them. I, I always say, have you seen a talking statue yet? And they say, they don't say, yeah, they usually say no. 
I say, have you, I say, have you seen a talking statue? And they say, no, we haven't seen any talking statue. I say, well, don't talk to me about your technology and this and that until you read the whole chapter, please. Because when you read the whole chapter of the book of Revelation, what do you see? It's very, very similar to Daniel. You've got a dragon. You've got a beast with 10 horns. This one also, 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns. Each head has a blasphemous name. And then you see a beast, and this beast has got everything in it, you know. Everything that Daniel had in it, this beast has in it. A leopard, bear, a lion, all squashed into one. And there's dragons and all this fantastic language. And you see there's one uh, beast that gets a mouth to utter blasphemy. This is probably the same thing as this antichrist figure that we're previewed in in Daniel. And he's blaspheming against God and he's waging war against God. And he's given authority to conquer and he's trying to force people to worship his boss, which seems to be this dragon figure and so on. And then you see another beast that comes out and you see, I mean, it's right before the famous passage with the technology and the mark of the beast. The guy makes a statue of his dead boss speak. So I always tell people, until you show me the talking statue, then I don't want to hear about all this technology and all of these things, folks. But you've got to be really careful when you, when you look at the modern era and you try and you know, pin the tail on the Antichrist and do all of these things. Be really, really careful. Read the whole thing in context. You're talking about the language of fantasy here. Be careful. There's a bigger message to be understood when you read Daniel 7, when you read Revelation, when you read uh, chapter 13, chapter 14, and all of these things, and you read these apocalypses that you see in the Bible, there's a much bigger message that we often miss. Very, very simple as we finish up today. Number one, the world is not as it should be. Daniel is bothered by what he sees. He's looking hundreds and hundreds of years into the future here with this, with this dream. Even if you have trouble saying that this whole Antichrist thing and this little horn stretches into the future, i.e. even our time and even our future, even if you have trouble with that, it's undeniable that he most certainly is talking about the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. This is undeniable. Most people in most camps don't deny that at least he's talking about this. Even this, folks, causes him to be disturbed because he sees that the world is not as it should be. Things seem to get worse and worse and worse, and there's something off about planet Earth. There's something that's not right. There's an injustice. There's an evil that's running rampant. There's a horn that's blaspheming and battling against God's people. It's not right. This world is not right. It is not as it should be. The same is true today. May we be disturbed, folks. May we be bothered by what we see when we look around at planet Earth. It's when we get really comfortable and really lax and really, oh, we have our little world and our little existence, which is so puny and so tiny, and we don't look at the broader world around us, which is in turmoil, folks. 
it should bother us to a point where we say to ourselves, God has to do something because we are not capable of fixing it. We seem to make it worse and worse. Another kingdom comes and another kingdom goes. Does it improve planet Earth? No, it gets worse and worse. And this is the message. This is why it bothers Daniel because he sees things are not, it doesn't seem to get like, look at this fourth beast. Terrifying, he says. Really bothered. I mean, he's Daniel. This man has experienced the power, the supernatural power of God like few people in the scripture have, and yet his face changes color when he's contemplating what he's seeing here. May we be bothered by what we see, folks. And it, 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 if you're not, and you, then it means your scope is very narrow. It means you need to get around a little bit. It means you need to understand how this world is doing, and it's not doing so good, folks. God has to step in. God has to intervene. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's what you see in these images. One beast, and the next one is worse. The next one is worse. The next one is worse. And then you have the Messiah come. You have the rock that comes. It's cut out, not by human hands. You have the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven. The, the, the very verse that got Jesus executed is the one that is going to save us all. It, either God is going to intervene or, folks, we're in serious, serious trouble because history has shown us that we cannot fix ourselves. We're very good at destroying ourselves, but we're not very good at fixing ourselves, even though we're told over and over and over again, oh, we're just getting so much smarter. Oh, we're just so much more sophisticated. We're so much more intelligent. We're so much more liberal. The Bible would say, yeah, you're, getting, you're going faster and faster, but you're getting dumber and dumber as you get faster and faster. This is the perspective of the Bible. A rapid, rapid down the drain is what we're doing to ourselves. God has to step in. It's going to get worse before it gets better, folks. We have it very, very easy here in Canada. Very easy compared to other parts in the world. I see Marie-José Mann is here and done a lot of traveling in African nations and so on and seeing folks like and some of you, you've been around the world, and Christianity is really easy over here in North America. Yes, we have our politics and all these things, but folks, we're in a movie theater here, in the public. No one seems to care. The day may come where people do care, folks. It may come. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but we have, and this has got to be your perspective, we have the hope of Jesus Christ. Return. If the second coming of Christ is not part of your thinking as you survey planet Earth, there's something wrong with your thinking. You need to become persuaded that Jesus Christ is coming back again because there is no solution apart from him. I wish that we were smart enough and we were ingenious enough and we were wise enough and so on, but we're not, folks. And I think when you survey history, it's pretty obvious we are not. If Jesus does not return, we have an immense problem on our hands. 
You cannot reconcile the character of God as being holy and all-powerful without the second coming of Christ. It's impossible. The age-old question, if God is all-powerful and God is good, why is the world the way that it is, is solved only one way. He has to return. If he does not return, then the critics have an edge. Then they're right. There's something wrong with God's character. But we see in the scripture clearly, and it put, it's what got Jesus on the cross, is that he claimed to be God the Messiah. Who was that one who was predicted way back in Daniel 7, five, six hundred years before Jesus stood on trial? I am that one, and I'm, so, I'm, I'm going to sit at the right hand of God. I can just imagine the high priest in a rage at what he heard. And yet, folks, that is our only answer. That is our only solution, the second coming of Christ. You say, well, I can't believe that Jesus is coming back. Well, do you believe he rose from the dead? If you believe he rose from the dead, you have grounds to believe he's coming back. If he rose from the dead, then there's a supernatural. If the supernatural is real, then there is grounds to believe that Jesus is, is going to return. It's exactly what the hope of the entire New Testament is that Jesus will return and make right the world that has gone wrong. And this is the overarching message that you need to get from Daniel 7, for example, or Revelation, the whole book, the whole, the whole premise of this, God is sovereign and he is in control and he will make it right. But are we going to believe that anymore? Are we going to hold to that truth even as we watch the world spin off its axis? Folks, the crazy things that we are seeing, the wars that we are seeing, the anger that we are seeing, all of these things are going to intensify. And they're going to reach a point where we need to be crying out for God to intervene, to intervene. And this has got to become part of your, your thinking. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught everyone to pray, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your, that's what it is, your kingdom come, because the world is not as it ought to be. Your kingdom needs to come, and your will needs to be done on earth as it is in heaven, because in heaven, there's no block to your will. On this earth, there's a real block. And the block is us, really. We're the ones who are often in the way of the will of God being executed properly on planet Earth. This is why Jesus says, you've got to pray for this. This has got to become a priority in your life. And this is the message out of Daniel chapter 7. Would you stand with me, please, some musicians? If you're in the room, you can come and play whatever you want to your heart's content. You sounded so great. You can play and play and play. Okay, but let's, let's pray before we finish up today. And uh, those of you with kids over at Chocolat Favori, don't worry, they will come back, okay? You don't have to go across the street and get them unless you want to. Uh, remember, next week we've got uh, Anna Russ coming in to preach and uh, also the Back to School Bash. I'll put it on the screen. You know what to do with that. Share, share, share. Please, please, I want to hit 50. Father, I pray for each person who's in the room today.
Lord, would you challenge us and speak to our hearts? We, it's 2,000 years, and uh, there's, there's so much skepticism in the air. Lord, even, even in the church, have we lost a hope and passion that you will make it right one day? Has this now become a relic in our thinking? Has, have these thoughts become covered with dust? Even as we watch, oh God, the, 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 the evil running rampant, it seems, on this planet. Oh God, I pray you would help us. I pray you would help us to shift what we think about, to shift what we pray about. May we pray it again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may that be a shift in the way that we pray. May it be a shift in the way that we live. Open our eyes, oh God. Open our eyes and show us the need of this world. Show us, Lord, even our neighbors. And uh, there's things going on in, in, the, in our neighbors' homes right next to us, oh God. And they need Jesus. Not even They don't even know about the second coming. They need to know about the first coming. Oh God, help us. May we be people filled with your spirit and living Christianly in a real way, in an authentic way that impacts our lives and our families and our communities. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you today. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll be down in the front to greet you if you want to slip me your guest card. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday, everyone.
Amen. 